Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefan Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So as you listeners know, if you've been listening to our episodes recently, we are all in on this Halloween season. We have just been <laughs> picking all of our topics based around some spooky things. Almost all of our topics, not quite all of them. So for our October book club pick, we went with Revenge, 11 Dark Tales by Yoko Ogawa. It was originally published in 1998 in Japan and translated and published in the U.S. in 2013. It has been really well-reviewed and received. Um, it went on to win several awards. It came up on a bunch of lists I was looking at. So these 11 short stories are Afternoon at the Bakery, Fruit Juice, Old Mrs. J, The Little Dustman, Lab Coats, Sewing for the Heart, Welcome to the Museum of Torture, The Man Who Sold Braces, The Last Hour of the Bengal Tiger, Tomatoes and the Full Moon, and Poison Plants. <laughs> so that's, you know, a real hodgepodge of titles. Yes. And these stories are in parts bizarre, unsettling, metafictional, and they are connected. Ogawa's writing is descriptive but sparse. Like, she can really paint a picture and build dread by crafting only a few sentences together. She's very fast in communicating what's going on. She's able to do a lot with a little. And I thought the whole thing was really textual. Like, she'll describe sounds that are, you know, often associated with horror, like a violin screech or something, like just really messing with all of your senses. And it does make you question the reality of the stories you're reading, the reliability of the narrator so that you're in a constant state of uncertainty. Because every story is told from the viewpoint of a narrator. Sometimes you realize who it is later. Oftentimes you're like, I don't know who this is. Right. <laughs> There's no gender given. It's just the narrator. And I thought it was really cool. I really enjoyed it because there are instances, especially in the beginning, when you read something and think, oh, that's a red herring or just a minor detail. But then it shows up in a later story. It's disorienting as well because the narrator shifts and you're never quite sure, yeah, who it is, if these stories are going to connect or if they're not going to connect. Some of the stories become more horrifying or disturbing only after you've read the next story. And that gives this layer of foreboding and dread throughout where you might read something and you're like, oh no, I'm pretty sure that's worse than I think it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to find out why later. At the same time, it's kind of fun and scary to try to pick up on the random details that may be integral to the future stories. I was like, oh, I bet that's going to show up. I could almost never guess how, but I'd be like, that's... That's something. <laughs> yeah. I think it is interesting. It's one of those that you read through once and you're like, maybe I need to go back because I think I missed something that connects to this mm -hmm. part and I didn't realize it. And to the point that I also feel like I may have like skimmed over something or, you know, missed something. Right. I was like, I don't remember. Was that a part of this? Like, because it would be a retelling right. of the original story or the first story or the third story. And I'm like, what? What? Yeah. I mean, it connects way back. Like, uh, the... 10th story might connect to the second story. So 
And it might connect also to the sixth one and the fifth one, like a bunch of them. Towards the end, it gets wilder and wilder. <laughs> like, wait, what? Whoa, wait, what? <laughs> right. She does a really good job of making it circular, though. Like almost an infinite. As yes. if you can start anywhere and it just kind of all connects. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And it's also very, like the first story and the last story are symmetrical. It's interesting. It's interesting. We'll talk about it. And and Samantha and I were discussing before we started recording, I do wonder how much was lost in translation or that I missed in cultural differences. It wasn't that I felt like something was missing. I just always wonder about that when I'm consuming entertainment that has been translated or from different cultures. And um, we're both big fans, fans of Japanese horror. And there have been plenty of Japanese horror movies I've watched where I'm like, I don't get that. Like, I get it's a big deal. Right. But I because it's a different culture, I don't understand the impact and full meaning of this. Right. As in fact, one of the uh, articles that I read did say that the translator stated about the title alone wasn't mm-hmm. an exact translation and that there was something lost to that. I think they did, he did the best he could in what it was. It's kind of like how we were talking about, and, and I've never seen this, and this is very much going to date me. So if y'all listen to this, like, Four years in the future, you'll be like, what? The Squid Game <laughs> and the fact that it is in Korean and everybody loves it, but a lot of the Korean pe- speakers are like, you're missing so much because you don't know the language. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of that same way with these types of books. And we also know like Japanese culture, Asian cultures in itself, there is like a loss of words here and explanations of things. So, of course, we're trying to like not dumb it down, but it does change it fairly eh, significantly but still very enjoyable. Obviously, it's still getting a lot of accolades for her storytelling. But yeah, some of the comparisons that they do to other Japanese authors, you're like, I have a feeling that's just because it's a Japanese author. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, like I really enjoyed this book. It wasn't like there were moments that I was confused or thought I was missing something. I just feel like there might have been some like, symbolism that I might have missed or or things like that. I think she does things purposefully and maybe this is me just projecting my own way of like, Mm. this is how I write things. Like she doesn't want you to quite know. She wants to make it Mm -hmm. mysterious so that you can come back with a, but wait, was she saying this? Did did she mean it this way? And like purposely Mm -hmm. making you guess and kind of go back into hindsight and being like, what? Yeah, that's one of the things I felt the most reading this was like, uncertainty (laughs) but purposeful like it was meant to be like oh wait oh right that just happened like I love how suddenly you'd be reading something and you're like oh this is nice and then the one sentence is like oh my god it changes right right it literally you're like oh 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 my god okay (laughs) what I think the last story got me at one point I was like wait did that happen yeah no the last story we'll talk about it but yeah I was like wait Huh? So let's let's do a quick overview of these stories. And we'll start with the first one, which is called Afternoon at the Bakery. Right. So the story follows a woman on her quest to a bakery to buy two strawberry shortcakes. And her description of it made me really want a strawberry shortcake. I don't know. Yeah. I was like, oh, I want one of those. Sounded nice. And the tension builds slowly with several things that just seem off. The baker isn't there, though she normally is. There aren't any customers. So the other patron, who also provides the spices for the bakery, has an odd smell and immediately says something about how there's nothing funny in the baked goods. Then it turns out that the shortcake the woman is uh, after is for her dead son. Um, He had died 12 years earlier after suffocating in a refrigerator in a vacant lot. When the woman found him, she refused to believe he was dead, bribing him to come home with strawberry shortcake for his birthday. Um, In the days after his death, the woman watched the cake rot. And it was very descriptive, too. It was quite descriptive. And here's a quote. (laughs) I passed my days watching it rot. First, the cream turned brown and separated from the fat, staining the cellophane wrapper. Then the strawberries dried out, wrinkling up like heads of deformed babies. The sponge cake hardened and crumbled, and finally a layer of mold appeared. Mold can be quite beautiful, I told my husband. The spots multiplied, covering the shortcake in delicate blotches of color. Get rid of it, my husband said. I could tell he was angry, but I did not understand why he would speak so harshly about our son's birthday cake. So I threw it in his face. Mold and crumbs covered his hair and his cheeks, and a terrible smell filled the room. It was like breathing in death. 
Right. So after her son's death, uh, the woman starts collecting articles about tragic deaths of children, reciting them like poems. She cleans out her refrigerator and closes herself in, determined to feel what her son felt to go to him. Um, And her husband, of course, finds her, pulls her out and slaps her, trying to tell her, snap out of it, and then just has had enough and leaves her. Yes. The woman realizes the baker is in the kitchen crying, and that she is the sole witness of this this grief. Uh, So she hovers for a moment, thinking she could call out to the baker, but decides against it, waiting for her to collect herself, have her moment of grief, and reemerge before ordering the shortcakes. So, this leaves us here. We're going to story number two, titled Fruit Juice. Yes. Uh, And this one opens with a young woman nervously asking the narrator out to lunch at a library. And the narrator is... Confused, very confused, because the two aren't close, but agrees. Apparently, he's like, she's never even talked to me. We've never talked. I've never really noticed her. Right. And I was like, okay, might as well. (laughs) And the narrator recalls the young woman as being discreet, silent, and easy to ignore with no friends to speak of. Um, And that she was apologetic when people noticed her. I will say the way it built up, Mm -hmm. I thought was like, oh, this is going to be bad. You better get killed (laughs) or sacrificed. I thought, you know, interestingly enough, I have a really bad habit of doing this, but when I was um, reading this, I was taking notes as I was reading it. So some some of this I was like typing out (laughs) and then the whole thing changed. My whole viewpoint changed. (laughs) It it was interesting experience to be like, oh, (laughs) that's what mattered. (laughs) Okay, that's where this was going. (laughs) So the young woman reveals her mother has liver cancer and won't live much longer as the pair is on their way to this meal and that the mother had given her daughter a business card with the information of a well-known politician and told her to contact him if something were to happen to her. Also, the narrator vaguely remembers a rumor of the young woman being an an illegitimate child. (laughs) And then it just is like, yes, she is. I remember being like, oh, so she is. Okay. It didn't, there wasn't really a sentence or a confrontation or anything. It was just like, yeah, okay. But yeah, she is meeting this politician slash her father for the first time that day. They arrive at a nice French restaurant that is primarily white, where the man is in a back room already drinking a dark red drink. So there's that color contrast. After an awkward, silent meal, the man attempts to make conversation with his daughter. But it's clear that they come from different backgrounds. Uh, she has some not-so-subtle digs that he hasn't provided for her while he was living his fancy life, that she loved music and wanted to pick up the violin but didn't have the money, um, and then later reveals that her mother had wanted to go into music as well but became a typist instead. Yeah, and then you had that flashback of him watching her maybe stealing a violin? Yes. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. That's one of the only interactions he remembers having with her. The right, narrator. The narrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after the lunch, the pair walks home and discovers an abandoned post office packed with kiwis. And kiwis are all throughout. I thought that was an interesting fruit to use. Mm-hmm. They break in, and the young woman eats kiwi after kiwi, the juice sticking to her hands and face. The air is sharp and glowing and sweet and sour like death. Dum, dum, dum. Yep. <laughs> the pair returns to school the next day and go on as if nothing happened. Her mother died soon after. She ended up going to school for pastry making. Hmm? Several years passed before the narrator runs across an obituary for the man that they'd had lunch with at the French restaurant, and he tracks down the woman's number at the bakery she now works at, um, and she finally allows herself this moment to cry and to grieve. So it was the baker. From the first one. And it actually was like a happy conversation, even though she's crying. Mm -hmm. Because she's thanking him. Because he was like, I'm so sorry I wasn't there. I just know that helps so much. Thank you. Yeah. So it was interesting, too. A lot of these weren't scary. But, I mean, there were details in it that were like unsettling and put me on edge. And one was like, okay, why are there all these Kiwis in this post office? Something that's very strange, but I didn't really think too much of it. I was just kind of like, oh, that wasn't really that scary. And then you get to the next story, (laughs) which is called Old Mrs. J. Um, And this one follows a narrator who has just moved into a new, lovely-sounding place. Their landlord is Old Mrs. J, who keeps orchards of 
kiwis. So thick that, quote, on moonlit nights when the wind was blowing, the whole hillside would tremble as though covered with a swarm of dark green bats. At times, I found myself thinking they might fly away at any moment. Then one day, the narrator realizes that in the night, a whole section of the kiwis had been harvested. The narrator, a writer, suspects they must have missed the workers picking them somehow, and only a few days pass before tiny fruits are growing on the trees. So from the limited interactions with Mrs. J, the narrator observes that she must be quiet a woman who lives a boring, monotonous life with the same schedule every day. And when she works in the garden, however, she's much more alive, almost a different woman. Yes. The narrator receives their first gift from Mrs. J after coming to her aid when a stray cat is messing with her garden. She comes into the narrator's apartment for the first time, admiring the books and the typewriter in there while revealing her husband was a drunk who gambled her savings away and he went missing one day on the beach. She also reveals she's a masseuse and the narrator requests a massage when she has the time. The narrator witnesses Mrs. J giving a middle-aged man a massage an act that looks really violent and strong despite her old age and general frail nature. She starts having tea with the narrator, chattering away and bringing them vegetables, including a carrot in the shape of a hand. She starts bringing the narrator their mail, including a package of scallops that had spoiled because they had been in transit for two weeks. Hmm. One windy night, as the narrator is reading over their manuscript, they spot a figure in the orchards. It's Mrs. J with a box, handling it with great skill and expertise. She takes it to the abandoned post office at the bottom of the hill. The narrator finally gets that massage. Mrs. J holds them down with strength. Her fingers described as like bones, like there's no skin on them. It was real intense. It was a real intense experience and leaves lingering pain. More and more hand-shaped carrots grow over the following days. Reporters come out to photograph the carrot hands and story appears in the paper. So we cut to inspectors asking about Mrs. J's missing husband and if the narrator ever noticed anything unusual. The narrator recounts the time they witnessed Mrs. J go to the abandoned post office in the middle of the night. And when the authorities investigated, they found a mountain of kiwis inside and the body of a cat underneath. But digging into the garden revealed the decomposing body of her husband, who's been strangled, which after you hear the description of how she gave that massage, you're like, oh... Okay. And his blood was found on Mrs. J's nightgown. His hands were missing from the corpse and never recovered. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But that changes like her eating the kiwis, even though it was just the cat. It was still a dead cat yeah. in there, though. <laughs> <laughs> rant for a sec. Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
The next story is called The Little Dustman, um, and it opens with the narrator being stuck on a train in a freak snowstorm, making him late for their stepmother's funeral, a death the narrator found out about through their girlfriend who worked at a magazine. The stepmother had been a writer and for a brief two-year period had acted as the only mother the narrator ever knew. Their biological mother died when they were very young after a scratched pimple in her nose got infected, leading the narrator to have a fear of germs getting to his brain through his nose. Right, so the narrator remembers Mama as being really petite, even as a child, but he can't recall Mama's name. So she left after the divorce. Um, Their marriage lasted only two years, and the narrator's father erased all evidence of her. The narrator couldn't even remember her name until he searched the house and found a pendant with her name engraved in it. He returned it to the drawer, relieved. When Mama had been alive, she had hid her writing from her husband, believing him to be a real artist, although apparently he wasn't. A professional. He just did things as almost a hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she would read what she wrote to the narrator as a child. Yes. And if you're kind of confused by like pronoun switching, it's because like we said, you don't know the gender often at first and sometimes ever in these short stories. But sometimes you find out like halfway in or towards the end. So it turns out Mama had become very paranoid as a writer and had written a story about an old woman who grew carrots shaped like hands and the police eventually found the body of her husband in the garden. The narrator receives a clipping from a newspaper showing her standing next to an old woman with carrots shaped like hands. Her pendant disappeared. (laughs) Right. And in this story too that he talks about spending time with her, this is the zoo story, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, she takes him to the zoo. The, yeah. Uh, in the cold, mm-hmm. which does pop back up later. It does. It yeah, does. so she takes him to the zoo. Uh, he remembers this one amazing day where they go and look at a zoo, but it's very cold, so no one was there. Mm-hmm. And it's snowing, but still, they went, and they had a conversation about giraffes. Yes. And how that was sad that this giraffe has such a long neck and was not, quote-unquote, normal. <laughs> Right. Which is a a fun conversation. And then they go home. Right. And that does pop up later. But also in the first story, when the woman was remembering her son, she remembered that he like asked about drafts and like similar questions. And so you're like, wait, what's going on here? Right. (laughs) What's the connection? Is there one? The next story is called Lab Coats, and it follows the secretary at a hospital and their journey to the morgue. Um, The laundry room is right next to it. Part of the secretary's job is doing the laundry, which means checking lab coats to make sure there's nothing in the pockets. Another secretary complains to the narrator about her new boyfriend and how he was supposed to come see her the night before, but claimed he got stuck on a train in a snowstorm. The secretary does not buy this excuse. The narrator thinks about how beautiful the other secretary is, how she knows exactly what she wants, but that when she's wrong, she'll blame others, including the narrator, but they let her get away with it to keep up this image of her being perfect. Um, The narrator seems to know a lot of details about her, including where she lives. Seems to fantasize about her too. But then (laughs) the secretary reveals after her boyfriend, who has been stringing her along, promising a divorce, pressed her to wait a little bit longer. She killed him. The narrator says she seems spotless and shakes out of the boyfriend's old lab coat a tongue. His tongue, we can presume. Um, But that one was a real flip of expectations. Because it was building it as if, like, this was a stalker situation. Right. He or she or whoever the narrator is was going to do something to the secretary. And then it just flips. <laughs> it's like, no. Well, there was also this narrative of the fact that she had taken a situation at work where she was supposed to be pristine and perfect mm-hmm. and a leader. And then she did something wrong. And so it just blamed it on her. Right. Or on the other person mm-hmm. who was helping, but knew what they were doing. But because she loved her too much, yeah. the secretary, that she didn't say anything, she didn't stand up for herself and still didn't think anything of it. It never yeah. faulted her at all. Well, yeah. It could be like very much the conversation of her being real controlling and maybe a sociopath. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because she does come back later and you see her through someone else's point of view and they're like oh she can never do anything right and it's just interesting to get those two different like takes on the same person and then we have what i think maybe the most interesting story of the bunch i don't i mean all of them are fairly interesting but this one got me to be like oh no (laughs) 
Oh, no, all around. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this title, Sewing for the Heart. Yes. So this one also starts in a hospital. The same one, actually, uh, with a missing doctor of the respiratory medicine unit. The narrator is a bag maker who lives alone in an apartment above their shop. And the narrator really, really loves bags, like knows all about them, goes into great detail about the types of bags, um, making them, observing people with them and their whole thing in general. Literally like, oh, that one kind of looks like her face. Yeah was an interesting take. (laughs) One day, a customer asks the narrator to make a bag to hold a human heart. She had heard the narrator could make a bag for anything and that many others had already turned her down. Um, And there are a lot of specifications. It can't be too absorbent, but has to breathe and be kept warm. The shape is important too also. Uh, It was to be secure, but not too tight. It needed holes for the veins and arteries, um, and the bag is necessary because she had been born with her heart outside her body. Uh, It worked because of its position, but it was extremely vulnerable, and the narrator suggests sealskin. And I was like already, oh, oh, (laughs) sealskin? Yeah, the the narrator is excited about this prospect, like this challenge. So to make the bag, the narrator realizes he will have to see the exposed heart at some point, a prospect that terrifies him. But when it actually happens, the narrator finds, it's not so bad. (laughs) Um, Quote, it could fit in the palm of my hand. A pale pink membrane of delicate muscle tissue surrounded it. What extraordinary breathtaking beauty. Would it feel damp if I cupped it in my hands? Would the membrane rupture if I gave it a squeeze? Could I feel it beating? Feel it shrink from my caresses? I wanted to run my fingertips over each tiny bump and furrow, touch my lips to the veins, soft tissue on soft tissue, the pressure of her pulse against my skin. I could easily lose myself to these thoughts, but I knew I had to keep this desire in check. I had to play my role and make the perfect bag for this heart. The narrator, to make this perfect bag, goes about measuring veins and arteries, accidentally touching it at one point. Um, The narrator learns the customer is a singer and goes to see her in secret, wanting to see the heart in the wild. (laughs) When uh, they test the bag for fit, the narrator likens the bag to a spider or a fetus, but it does fit her pretty much perfectly, though she asks for some adjustments. The narrator is incredibly pleased with his work and that he's created something unique, uh, something no one else has ever made. And by the way, throughout the story, we learn about his pet hamster, whom he loves, and he has made a bag for his hamster so he could take Mm -hmm. it on a walk. So the narrator's life became consumed with this bag. Their hunger died, their hamster died. I mean, literally... He's like, oh, no, it's dead. What do I do? <laughs> and we don't know if it's because of neglect or what, because at one point I was happy and going about his life. And then all of a sudden he's like, I forgot about everything. Oh, and I found my hamster dead. Then the customer reveals that she no longer needs the bag and that she's pursuing a procedure to put her heart back into place, which, I mean, like, for a moment I was on his side. I was like, oh, that was really rude. <laughs> I think she does offer to pay, but I don't know if she does. Yeah, she offers to, but yeah, she was very dismissive of, like, it's like, oh, crap, I don't need it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> also, by the way, throughout this whole time, as she's like showing him the mm-hmm. heart, she's very nonplus about it. She's like, here you go. Here's the heart. Yeah. You don't have to be so gentle. Just, like, be gentle, but you can, you can look at it. You can right. touch it. She's like, it was really oddly mm-hmm. casual. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what he thinks, and that's how he read it. I don't yeah. know. Anyway. The narrator tries to convince her not to, that the bag is perfect. Like, he's trying to tell her how amazing it is. No, seriously, I put so much work into it, you're not going to want to put it back in your body. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the customer reiterates she won't be needing it and accidentally knocks it to the floor as she leaves like a dead animal. He compares it to, like, just a dead carcass. Yeah, and also, uh, (laughs) re the hamster. Uh, He threw it away in a fast food uh, trash can. Yes, with ketchup on it, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the ketchup. I, I don't think he put ketchup on it and then threw it away. The ketchup just sort of happened. But yes. yeah, he just talked about the ketchup being on it. And I was like, huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, the narrator shows up at the hospital determined to get the woman to try the bag one time since it was a once in a lifetime project before she gets the procedure. <laughs> so he. As he's in the elevator, 
going up, he thinks to himself that he will get the bag on her and cut away the heart so that it belongs to him. Yep. It ends there. But that's the thought. He has and he has the knife. Like he has a whole plan on how he's going to do this, how he's faking his way into the uh, room. Mm -hmm. But also you should know that throughout, he does, obviously, as you read the passage, he has a really big fetish for this heart yeah. that he is so obsessed with. It. He cares nothing about the woman. Oh, no. He cares nothing about her, only the heart. And it usually ends with like him pretty much in his mind molesting the heart and then squeezing it. <laughs> oh, ooh. yeah. That is throughout the story, mm-hmm. which I thought was weird. Mm-hmm. This is why I was like, oh, God, that's just, oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, that was a pretty big turning point from what they'd been so far. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, okay, this dude is real, real, real there. Because yeah. at the very least, the other way, the other stories, we have a different perspective of mm-hmm. the the narrators not being a part of it, but may have been witness to it. Right, so, right, right, right. Different to see that as the point of view. Mm-hmm. And then we have the next story, which is Welcome to the Museum of Torture, which is like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one starts with recounting of all the deaths that have happened across the world that day and the narrator finding the body of a dead hamster in a fast food trash can. Yeah, she talks about the fact that she thought it moved and she was very fascinated about it, but then it was maggots. It was, and I was like, oh, maggots, no. yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Mm-hmm. Not only that, a doctor has been murdered in the apartment above hers is a she at this point. Uh of narrators. Investigators question the narrator about the murder and also about the possible connection between that and a murder of a patient that took place in the hospital where he worked at, that doctor. Essentially, when the woman had been killed, the murderer gouging a hole in her chest. But I think actually she was stabbed, like, in her throat too. He lost his pain. Like, I don't know what conversation happens, but it says she had been stabbed to death. Mm -hmm. And so was the doctor had been stabbed to death to the point that he was almost decapitated. And she's talking about the fact that trying to describe this to him being essential to the uh, investigation. Kind of proud of it and really into this detective and wants to tell him more, wants to be needed. Yes. The narrator, who is a beautician, is preparing for a night with her boyfriend, complete with strawberry shortcakes. Um, and it's, you know, they've they spent three weeks apart, so it's, you know, supposed to be this happy reunion. After she hears some noise coming from the apartment above, the narrator informs her boyfriend that there was a murder in that apartment. And the narrator goes all in, yeah, and I, like how she wants to help the detectives and reporters. She wants to help solve the case. And her boyfriend asks angrily if she thinks it's amusing someone died and storms out. The narrator goes for a walk, uh, sitting in front of a familiar bakery and watching a familiar clock that we've seen in other stories. She reminisces about all the girls that she had known who had been broken up with by their boyfriends for seemingly random, silly reasons in her mind. As she walks, the narrator ends up at the Museum of Torture and decides to go in. There's no one in the lobby. No one answers when called. So the narrator goes in, finds an old man that seems to be waiting for her. He asks the narrator if she wants to see the collection or contribute an instrument of torture. The narrator asks for a tour, and the man agrees, showing and describing items of torture, including a bag that is almost corset-like and contains traces of human blood and flesh. Hmm. The narrator imagines what it would be like to torture her boyfriend and ask if she can come back sometime. The old man says, they'll be waiting. Yeah, she has a lot of thoughts of torturing her boyfriend. She does. In here. She does. Mm-hmm. And then also a lot of thoughts on how the old man didn't look old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being like, there's something with this guy. And right. there was. <laughs> and there was. Yeah. She also asked if those items had been used or he had been attempted to use it. And he was like, I have. And she was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. And so there you go. But it doesn't seem to be shot. No. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. So we move on to another story called The Man Who Sold Braces. In the story, starts with the narrator remembering their uncle, who seemed to break everything he touched um, and went through many jobs, including curator of a museum and a brace salesman and creator. He was an inventor. Mm -hmm. He died when he was strangled after the garbage that accumulated in his place fell on him. I still don't understand the strangled bit as much as suffocation, so I wondered if that was a translation and or the insinuations that I thought maybe he had, like, asphyxiated himself. Yeah. But yeah. whatever. <laughs> and the narrator was called to claim the body and the fur coat left for them. So in the narrator's memories, their parents were always tense around the uncle, like, and everyone. It wasn't just the parents. Like, yeah. all adults, except him as a child. Yeah. Um, and in one particular memory, the uncle tried to help build a model that promptly broke. And it wasn't that he helped. He ended up doing it himself and wouldn't allow the boy to touch it. Right. Um, and the boy knew he was going to mess it up mm-hmm. like immediately and was anxious about allowing him to do it. Also, it took away from doing it with his father who had bought it for him. Right. Both of those things. And in another, the uncle tested a brace on the narrator, a collar around the neck, a brace around the spine, and support around the waist, which was supposed to make him taller. So it says just 30 minutes a day for six months to make you taller. Yay! Of course, it was incredibly uncomfortable. And despite the pain they caused, the difficulty breathing, the uncle has a contract to sell them, or so he says, and is planning on advertising them and getting them medically approved for physical therapy. And when the boy is trying it on, he's choking. He's like, please take it off, please take it off. Uh, And everybody's like, oh my God, what is this? Eventually, by the way, the uncle was arrested for fraud because that uh, contract wasn't (laughs) real, the permit wasn't real, and he was not supposed to be selling it as such. And he went to jail. Yes, he did. But when he got out, uh, he got a job as a butler at a very nice house owned by a pair of elderly twin women um, who were constantly traveling. The uncle claims that he spent most of his time at his job looking after the Bengal tiger. But also, (laughs) the twins go around the world buying stuff that could and had inflicted torture and bringing them home. So he watched over all that stuff, becoming the curator of this museum after the women died. At the funeral, at the uncle's funeral, there were whispers that the uncle had been doing indecent acts with underage girls at the museum, including a beautician he'd allegedly been involved with. The narrator remembers um, when his uncle gave him, yes, the fur coat to walk home in. It was a cold night, gave him a fur coat, and how the sleeves slipped off as the narrator realized it was bits of tiger. Yes. The relationship was really sweet. Like, oddly enough, because A, the uncle always brought him a gift and would be like, where do you think it is? And and me being like, oh, this is going to be bad. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was it was innocent. Mm-hmm. And so when the boy goes to visit him as an older man, 
He's like, I brought you a gift and brought him his favorite chocolates. Like the fact that someone actually cared about him yeah. was shocking because apparently no one did. None of the families did. Even talking about the funeral, how everybody was really uncomfortable and was trying to figure out why they were there, yeah. essentially. And again, the young boy who, who ends up being the one that's called in to come and claim his body because there was nobody else. Mm-hmm. He had been arrested a second time because he had uh, embezzled all of the uh, elderly sister's money, yeah. <laughs> apparently, which is why he, when he was in his home, he had all that stuff that was coming apart and he never got rid of anything. So mm-hmm. he ended up just stacking in a small apartment and that's how he died. Yeah. And also there were cheek rubbing. There was a lot of cheek rubbing. Yeah. The man liked to rub his cheek on everything. Mm-hmm. But again, it wasn't sexual. Yeah. I think that, I think the implication was that he hangs out with that tiger so much and that was his way of showing affection to the tiger. Which is a good lead-in to the next story, The Last Hour of the Bengal Tiger. Um, And this one opens on the narrator looking for a reason to avoid a confrontation with a woman, demanding, she's like thinking in her head that she's going to demand of this woman that she, quote, give her husband back. And the husband is a respiratory specialist um, who's been away on a medical conference. The narrator is stalled from this whole ordeal by an overturned truck on the highway that has killed the driver and um, left all these tomatoes spilling all over the road. The narrator remembers the woman her husband is cheating with, uh, the hospital secretary, as pathetic and bad at her job. (laughs) Um, Also, she has a run-in with the beautician. It's all coming together. <laughs> right. So looking for a reason to avoid the confrontation. And apparently in her mind, she also gets lost. because mm-hmm. uh, She's like, it's changed. And also, she also had this big description of how she's running over the uh, tomatoes and wondering, well, what would Phil like to run over a body? Oh, my God. Yes. And I don't know. Is, do you think this is the same time the doctor was supposed to be at a conference somewhere else or something, returns back because he got stuck in the train? goes and sees the secretary and he's being killed. Do you think this is the same timeline? So the reason, like, her missing, not getting to him was actually saved her life, maybe? I think so. Because I think he got delayed. The secretary, hospital secretary just did not believe it. But I think he was either lying about that medical conference. Right. Was it was this the same timeline or different timeline? I was wondering that. I was like, is this like when it just happened that she missed all these things and changed her mind on a day that would have gotten either her killed or right. saw her dead husband? Right. I think at this point, huh? I think I think it's the same timeline because I think it's earlier than some of the other stories we've read because the tiger is still alive. Right. Any <laughs> listeners who don't know how the story is, you probably do. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> Wait, what? Right. <laughs> right. So, food for thought. Yes. Moving on. Yes. So, uh, because she's trying to avoid it, she gets kind of lost. And she finds a really large house with a beautiful garden. Um, decides, I want to go into this garden, even though it is private property. I still don't understand this, like... Yeah. Invasiveness that everyone seems to be okay with. And she runs into an old man hovering over a very sick tiger. And the man gestures the narrator close as if he was expecting her. Mm-hmm. And we have this whole moment of us seeing that the tiger is sick um, and is laying there and dying. And then the man is loving all this. I will say, I was sitting next to my dog. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is not a nice story. I don't like this story because we're watching this tiger die. But there's this like moment between the tiger and the older man really connected. They become one, she says at one point in time in her mind. Because the way he touches his cheek to the tiger's cheek, and the tiger looking up to make sure he's still there as he's about to die. And then she stays with him. And she's like, oh my God, I think I've, I've interrupted. And he's like, no, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be here. Why would you say that? Mm-hmm. And she stays with him. And as the tiger dies, and immediately after, she walks away. She does. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was an interesting tie-in. I was like, oh, so the tiger was real. Because for the longest time, I thought maybe he was making this up. Right, right. And then it's implied that she's like given up on the confrontation. Like she's sort of still thinking about it, but she's like not... Not today. Well, she's about to go home and find her husband was decapitated and has no (laughs) tongue. So there's that. There is that, yeah. I mean, is that a good or bad thing? I don't know. (laughs) Probably pretty bad. (laughs) So we come to 
The next story, which is called Tomatoes and the Full Moon. The next story opens again with a narrator, a reporter this time, checking into a hotel room only to find a doll-like lady and her dog inside. I'm not going to lie. I thought for a minute that it was going to be a ghost story. Nope. Maybe it was. I'm I mean. still trying to figure it out. <laughs> and the woman claims to have checked into the room as well, but offers no proof. And the narrator convinces her she made a mistake and she leaves. I mean, convinces her because she's like, how did you, how did he's like, how'd you get in? She was like, through the patio door. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, just ma'am. That way. It's quicker. <laughs> ma'am, you don't have a key. Oh, I'm so sorry. And she leaves. And mm-hmm. she really loves this dog, by the way. Yes. And the reporter sees the woman the next day and can't stop watching her. Um, she's giving away tomatoes that she organically grows on her farm, in her words. When the reporter eats at the hotel restaurant, the dishes are full of tomatoes, which kind of they find tiresome. Um, <laughs> the woman joins the reporter at the table. The reporter reveals that they are writing an article about the hotel for a magazine. And the woman reveals she picked the tomatoes up the day before on a bridge and that she is drawn to the reporter because they remind her of the person who saved her and her stepson decades earlier from a snowstorm. The same snowstorm the narrator described going through with his mama several stories ago. But also, yeah, at the same time, it's confusing because it seems like she's describing the same child from the first story. Oh. Anyway, and she also says she's drawn to the reporter because they remind her of the person who saved her and her stepson decades earlier from a snowstorm. Perhaps the same snowstorm the narrator described going through with his mama several stories ago, but also could be the same child from the first story. I don't know. (laughs) She claimed that her work had been stolen and she had taken to carrying her manuscripts with her everywhere. And it turns out the women had written or claims to have written a story called Afternoon at the Bakery. Metafiction. When the narrator goes to check out, he discovers her manuscript only to find it blank. Right. So several bits to this, because I was like, what's happening? What is happening? A, the entire time you see her with a satchel that she will not let go of. Mm-hmm. To the point that he is obviously very fascinated by her at this point. Even like She's not just stalking him anymore. He like likes being around her, starts, starts taking pictures of her. He really enjoys her attention because when he swims, she requests specific types of swimming and claps very loudly for him. Which, by the way, no one is paying attention to this woman. The kitchen yeah. guy, Cook, did. But outside of that, no one really seems to see this woman, which I found interesting. And the entire time she's clutching this, refuses to let it go, talks about how her last work was stolen. And so he's like, okay, okay, we'll be careful, whatever. Then she disappears. He never sees her again. And But she leaves as he's leaving her, the chair that she sat in watching him. Apparently she had this one chair mm-hmm. the entire time he was there. She left the manuscript there, completely blank. Mm-hmm. And also in the story... The afternoon, right, The at the bakery, it was a picture of the person with the carrots that was in the back, and it wasn't her. Right. So this is where you're like, wait, what? Because the first story is called Afternoon at the Bakery, and that was the one where the woman went to the bakery, and she was trying to get the shortcakes for her dead child and witnesses the bakery baker crying. But... It, the implication seems to be she is this, at least to me, mama from that other story because she is a writer. She like kept things hidden. He later found out she wrote about those carrot hands, found a clipping of that in the paper. But this whole thing just seems to imply that either the first story is just a story that you read in this fictional world that she wrote, or she didn't write anything at all. It was kind of like a big liar. <laughs> right, right. So that was the other, because like the picture was not her, is what he says. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wait, so was it not her? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker 
retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Moving on to the finale called Poison Plants. Um, And this starts at a concert that included a children's choir singing, Little Dustman. The narrator, a painter this time, is intrigued by a servant at the event, believing he should be a singer, um, though he himself wants to be a composer. She arranges, the narrator arranges a scholarship for the man. Part of the deal required the man meeting up with her every week so that the narrator could hear his voice. She reveals to him that she had a daughter that played before she died and that she can no longer paint. He reads to her at night, including the story about the kiwis and the carrot hands. Yes. So many of those stories. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it gets really awkward. Yeah, it does. <laughs> There's a lot of awkwardness to this. Like, she obviously has feelings or at least fantasizes about him. He asks for a day, like, off or to switch his days, which she finds it very important. Like, she looks forward to it. She talks about it as if it's the only thing she looks forward to. When she asks why he wants to switch the days, he says, it's my girlfriend's birthday. And what she... Just says no. Gets mm-hmm. obviously upset. Refuses to allow him to do so. Lies and says it's her birthday as well. Yeah. And then does a guilt trip and says, I may be dead for the next one. So he shows up. Mm-hmm. They have a day. She realized, like, nothing big moves on. But then later, he calls to break off their partnership after receiving a scholarship from another source. Like, he sends her the money back Mm -hmm. with a letter telling her, thank you, someone else deserves to receive this. Distraught, the woman goes for a walk and gets lost, finding a vacant lot of refrigerators. So she opens and finds a dead body, and she talks to him, tries to wake him up, and then she sees herself in this thing as if it was her dead body and that she is dead. In her words, uh, she'd eaten poison plants, climbed into the fridge to die away from prying eyes. And she says that she finds a body. It's yes. not until later she talks about she sees herself. And maybe she did hallucinate, but we do know from the first story mm-hmm. that she, the mother of the the son says the woman was distraught, could not talk. Yeah, so we didn't mention this, but... it discovered his body. In the very first story, when the woman found her son's body in the fridge, there was a woman there who was very upset, and the narrator described her as looking more dead and ghost-like than her son did. So, I'm assuming... Again, these stories are so good because they make you question and, like, doubt... All kinds of things you were like, oh, but is it that? Is it the same person? <laughs> is it? I'm assuming it's the same person from the beginning, but. Uh. <laughs> yeah, there were so many comes back through. Again, some things that's lost in translation. It's all weaved together by some common themes. Mm-hmm. We don't know the timelines, obviously, because the first one would be much later. Mm-hmm. Than this story, yeah. which she discovers the body with the refrigerators. Yeah. Um, we don't know if the writer had a son originally. In my mind, I was like, wait, was the woman from the baker, did she have a son? 
before she had a stepson and she mimicked some of the things that happened yeah. and it just all came into one. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I thought that, that too. as well. Yeah. I really love the symmetry in a throwback because even if, I mean, I'm not sure that there's necessarily a right answer right. in this case, but even if they're, you know, we're connecting things that aren't connected, that is still like a throwback. And of course you're going to think that. And I, I really, right. I wasn't expecting it. It was pretty satisfying. So I know that as we've gone through these, it might have been confusing. It's hard to describe. It's like a really easy read and great read. It makes sense when you're doing it, but like <laughs> we did our best <laughs> to to make sense of these. And I just briefly want to touch on some themes because we've been going on for a minute, but obviously grief is one of the big ones, I thought. Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of descriptions of how life goes on after tragedy, despite your whole world being upturned, like kind of that discordant feeling of what's going on inside of you and what's happening and how things are continuing, even though it feels like to you, everything has changed and your whole world has changed. Right. And also like, like that speaks to how things are different beneath the surface because a lot of these stories and a lot of these narrators, not all of them, but a lot of them, you start thinking you understand them one way and then... You, as you learn more about whatever grief or trauma or what it is that they're experiencing, like, oh, so there's a lot going on right. <laughs> beneath the right. surface. Yeah. There's definitely a whole tone of death in general. Yeah. Whether it is tragic or not, whether you see it's tragic or not, mm-hmm. it just occurs. And that's kind of a catalyst on several of these stories and or the finale of several of these stories. Yeah. And I think also just the like almost impetus of, yes this death and it follows you around and it's like a ghost. I think the flipping of expectations that we've talked about, um, that was pretty common. It was really interesting too because a lot of the like, like the old woman who was a masseuse and then you find out, oh, she killed her husband probably. Well, there was also an implication of like that she killed the cat before we found the cat. Right. Like she hated that so much. She did hate cats. She was more powerful than you thought. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she really liked that flip as well. She also has a moment of like the author seemingly talking about age as mm-hmm. the real like haunt of them all between the uh, uncle and then the last story. It's kind of like, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it's interesting because it does get metafictional where you're like, are we commenting on the book that we're reading inside of this book? <laughs> like, <what> right. <laughs> Which I find right. fascinating. And there's a lot of elements. Like I said, it's really textural. So there's a lot of elements of music or song. And also food and food being used to represent kind of this like easily bruised slash consumed human body. Like it's often, you know, implied. A lot of decaying. Yes. Yes. A lot of decaying. A lot of like, yeah, driving over tomatoes and wondering whether (laughs) the human body will feel this way. You're right. Yeah. And even the eating of the kiwis, which is like, it wasn't necessarily described in a disgusting way, but you just felt unnerved by it. Well, it was... Yeah, because it was a duty uh, without thought. Mm-hmm. And then there was the same thing in that same story when she and her uh, father are eating. They yeah. just eat constantly just yeah. to pass the time mm-hmm. to move past that moment. It's like to the point of like, oh, okay, that's an interesting take on this. The carrots. Yeah, yeah, okay. Like, carrots. was that an actual hand? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> she kept saying pinky. I was like, why do you have to say that? Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. If you like horror, I really recommend it. And it was fun. Easy I read. I enjoyed the picking up of clues. I do like doing stuff like that. So fun. I love anything that connects. Yes. It feels, it feels like oh, you're on ah, the inside. Uh huh. Uh huh. And then you're guessing, like, aha. But right. it's really hard and impossible to guess a lot of times. But so. We recommend you check it out if you haven't already and you're interested. In the meantime, if you have any other recommendations for our book club, please send them our way. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I've never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've never told you is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring 
like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions.